Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Mito Action's monthly expert series. My name is Stephanie Harry. I'm one of the patient support coordinators at Mito Action, and I will be your host for today. As our children get older, these times can be both confusing, exciting, and scary for parents, especially as we're navigating preparing for our children's future and healthcare needs. We are so grateful to have Dr. Jordan Kamir join us today on this journey and discuss different components of healthcare transition for our children as they become adults. She will tackle important issues like finding adult physicians, navigating insurance changes, and transitioning to adult life. She has lots of good tips and tricks up her sleeves, so I'm super excited for this presentation. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via computer, you will see the presentation on your screen. If you're joining us via phone, you can follow the slideshow by going to mitoaction.org, select the Programs and Support tab, then select the Expert Series tab, and then scroll down to select Dr. Kamir's slideshow. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom of the menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Jordan Kamir. Dr. Jordan Kamir is an internal medicine physician and assistant professor at Baylor College of Medicine, where she provides primary care to adults with intellectual and or developmental disabilities. She's also the program director of the Adult Developmental Medicine Fellowship and passionately educates many healthcare professionals professional learners in providing high-quality health care to people with IDD. Dr. Kamir also works closely with partners at Texas Children's Hospital to improve transition from pediatric to adult health care. Thank you so much, Dr. Kamir, for joining us. We're super excited. Hey, everyone. It's so good to see you guys. Um, thank you so much for having me. I think one of my favorite things about joining meetings and groups like this is I always learn something. Um, and so um, I'm just really appreciative um, um, to Stephanie for, for asking me to come. Um, I'm, before I start to share my slides, I want to do one quick thing. Um, if you feel comfortable, you absolutely do not have to do this, but if you feel comfortable in the chat, if you wouldn't mind putting, you know, um, your, if you're a patient, um, you can put your own age in there. Um, and if you're a parent, you can put the age of your, um, of your child, uh, who has a mito condition, just so I can get kind of an idea, at least on Zoom, who's joining us and what different ages are. And then um, that would be that would be really helpful and awesome. And since I can't be in person with you guys, it helps me kind of get to know who all the different people are in the group. All right. So I'm going to start. I'm going to do the, the 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 famous screen share, and hopefully this is going to work as well as it did the last time. All right. Let me pull up one other. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit today about um, the idea of medical transition. And so <clears throat> when we think about healthcare transition, um, it's not just a one-time event. This is actually a planned process uh, for adolescents and young adults to transition from a pediatric to an adult healthcare framework. And that means hospitals, um, therapies, nursing, doctors, um, and then there's obviously a big piece of this that is just transitioning from into adult life. And so there's a couple things um, that I want us to sort of think about as, as overarching themes in the back of our minds today. One is to 
learn about planning for transition early alongside your doctor, um, recognizing barriers to successful transition, and then um, um, just important components of healthcare and life post-transition as well. So really quick who I am, just so you guys have a, a frame for, for, for where I'm coming from. Um, I am an internist, so an internal medicine doctor, and I am a primary care doctor. I happen to work in a really fun clinic at Baylor College of Medicine that partners with Texas Children's where we provide primary care to young adults with um, intellectual and or developmental disabilities. We have this beautiful place that has multiple social workers, has really good case management services, um, and we do tons of education for medical students, PA students, nursing students, social work students, residents, fellows, on and on about caring for our population. Um, in our clinic, we probably have 12, 1300 patients um, that have a variety of medical conditions. So obviously not just mito, um, but we see a lot of patients with genetic syndromes. And then we have a pretty close link with our um, metabolic clinic at Texas Children's. And so we do have um, some patients that have mitochondrial conditions as well. So when I'm sort of thinking and talking about um, uh, transition today, I like to think about it sort of in chunks of, of time or age of the individual's life. And so, um, as I said before, transition is more than just making a doctor's appointment with an adult doctor. And so no matter what age your child is, and I don't know if anybody, oh, all right, Stephanie put in there, woohoo, 14. So no matter what age your child is, I want you to be able to step away from today, or no matter what age you are, thinking about um, ways that you can participate in healthcare transition. And even if your child is 30, there are still some things to look out for in the future as things change. So we're gonna talk um, first about um, the earlier years and, and a lot of planning that can get done. And then we'll move on um, to, to some of the older age ranges. Okay, so first, um, as I said, we're gonna talk about birth sort of to planning or to 17. So uh, I have a, a colleague in um, Indiana that always says transition begins at birth. <laughs> and I think um, what it highlights is that um, there's there's always some, some things that you can be doing. And so first of all, um, Medicaid waiver programs are really important. So people with mitochondrial disorders are obviously, there's a wide, vast array of individuals that have these conditions. Um, and they represent, you know, they have a, a wide variety of comorbidities, um, meaning other illnesses that affect them because of their mitochondrial disorder or maybe, maybe independent of it. And then also have a wide array of um, needs in terms of where they're where they are with their intellectual ability, where they are with their developmental ability. So I have some people who are severely affected and um, require total care and have intellectual disability, and then other people who are much, much more independent, but obviously still have to manage their condition. And so for some people, this applies. So kind of for everything I'm saying today, um, you know, this may or may not apply to your um, child or to you, um, but Medicaid waiver programs are really important. And so um, these are programs that provide additional money for services that aren't covered by Medicaid. Um, there are a lot of different waivers and they're state-based. So every state um, in the U.S. has uh, different names or acronyms for their waivers. Um, and there are different qualifying criteria um, for particular waivers. And so 
I recommend everybody, no matter how old your child is, is that if you've never heard of this, then you should um, get going. And you can simply just start off by Googling your, the name of your state and Medicaid waiver programs and start to learn more about um, what waivers are available in your state. Many states have very long waiting lists. Texas's waiting list is 15 years from time of enrollment to expected um, receipt of actually services. And so um, we recommend that people do this when they receive a diagnosis. Um, for some of you, you may not, you may, your child may be very young and you may not know what the future is going to look like. Um, but I recommend that everybody sign up on a waiting list or, or at least explore this, um, no matter sort of what your child's developmental ability is like at the time. Um, we get people all the time who, when they come over to the adult side, ask us about physical therapy. They ask about um, additional um, support, maybe for provider hours. And if they don't have a waiver, then many of these things are not accessible to them as adults. And when we ask them this question and they say, I've never heard of that, it sort of breaks our hearts because this is something that maybe they could have signed up for 20 years ago. So this is always my first thing um, that I tell people. Okay. Next is just getting ready for transition. And so this can happen um, at a pretty young age. I recommend that people start really having conversations with their physicians when their child is around 12, 13, 14 years old. Um, and some of this really, um, pediatricians love their patients. And this also goes for subspecialists. So not just your, maybe your, your primary pediatrician, but also maybe your geneticist, or if you see other subspecialty doctors like your pulmonologist or your lung doctor, or maybe your endocrinologist, um, they love their patients. And a lot of times they never really think ahead, like what's going to happen in the future as this patient becomes an adult. And I often hear that people, physicians, pediatricians will tell their, their families, oh, I will see um, your child for life. Um, and sometimes they can say that, and sometimes they can say that, and the health system or the hospital will prevent them from doing that. So I tell families um, and patients that they should poignantly ask their pediatric doctors, um, at what age will you stop seeing my son or daughter, um, and that you should do that early on. Um, some clinics have policies that at 19 or 21 or whenever it is that that will stop. And so you want to know that several years in advance. And you also want to get that doctor's mind thinking about the future. Um, I also recommend that people ask, um, do you have any recommendations for adult doctors early on? You don't want to be doing that at the visit when your pediatrician says we can't see you anymore or your pediatric pulmonologist says your last visit will be in three months and then you must find an adult doctor. So you wanna ask these questions years in advance. And then um, something that I tell everybody is that if you are at a um, big children's hospital, and I, I'm sure a lot of you guys have had interactions with big children's hospitals because of the uniqueness of your child's conditions, you wanna ask as often as possible to meet with a social worker. Um, and you wanna ask about services and funding and how that might change as your child becomes an adult. Um, some social workers know a lot about this, others do not. Um, but when, if you're at your geneticist, um, for example, and they're at a big academic center, you should be able to access a social worker and you wanna ask for that. Um, the other big thing that I think everybody can do and start doing early is, is to ask the question of your doctor how can we help my son or daughter become more independent um, in their self-care and also more independent during office visits? Um, and I think this is really important. 
And so everybody has a different you know, plan for how they manage their condition. So I have some patients with genetic conditions that is managed by a particular supplement, um, diet modifications, um, maybe a prescription medicine. Um, uh, and so all of those things, for some of those patients I have, they are profoundly affected. Their parents are going to be giving them those medicines their whole life. For most of, a lot of my patients, they can participate in, um, in some self-management, which means that they can actually give themselves some of those medicines. They can actually give themselves those supplements. Um, they have the developmental ability to sort of think about what foods they're supposed to eat or not supposed to eat. And so it's really important to start early in allowing your child, you know, teaching your child this stuff and then allowing them some independence. And this can be really, really scary. And I have a child that has a chronic illness, nothing as significant as, as a mitochondrial disease, but um, it is scary to allow him to start to do some self-management um, of his food allergies and his asthma. And so um, I get it, um, but I think the earlier you start, the more baby steps you can take. Um, and then also, um, I recommend that people start letting their child meet alone with their doctor for a little bit of time um, when they're this age. And a lot of doctors won't prompt this. So they won't say, hey, I'm going to have your mom or dad step out for a second so that we can talk a little bit, just the two of us. Um, it's not, it's easier for doctors to have the parent in the room and just kind of do the visit with the parent. But if your child is verbal and is able to communicate their needs and their thoughts and their wants, um, or talk about their condition, then you absolutely should allow the doctor some time to meet with them by themselves. I have a couple moms and I, as this is my passion, I should just do this with every patient, but I often forget. And so I have a few moms that if I forget, they will stand up and say, okay, I'm going to let you meet with the doctor by yourself, by Dr. Mary, and we'll step out as a reminder to me. Um, and so I think this is really important because the goal is that one day, many of your children will go to the doctor by themselves and they should practice this in small um, you know, subsets. And, and you guys should think together about what questions they want to ask the doctor. Um, but this is really the time to start thinking about self-management skills and then um, asking your doctor, what's the plan for three, four, or five years from now? Okay. Next up is getting organized for transition. And so this is what I will call a care plan. Um, different people have different names for this document. Um, but this is something that you want to put together uh, and really make a medical summary um, for, for your child. And, you, and it's great if you can do it alongside your child. And so first, you just want to make a list of who the team is. And the team is not just um, a doctor. The team is also maybe a nursing agency. It might be equipment um, or therapy or um, uh, you know, where the company that you get a certain supplement for, or that you get formula from, or whatever it might be. And so you want to actually list all this information, the contact, the, the, the number for that, for that organization. And then you want to make um, a medical summary. And this can be really hard to do. Um, some of you guys maybe have, if you were to write down everything that's happened when your child has interacted with the healthcare system, you could have, you know, just piles and piles and piles of information. And so you really want to hit this sweet spot where you want to include enough detail um, that the important things get in there, but you want to make it readable for, um, for a physician or a healthcare provider. 
Um, and this is, can be really hard to do. Um, I actually recently worked on a medical summary for my um, cousin who has myotonic dystrophy. Um, and it was hard because there are a lot of things that have happened in her life. She's 38. Um, and there are a lot of things that were really important to us as a family, but maybe aren't as important to physicians. And so what you want to do, and I actually think it's really good to have it in, in bullet points. I usually like to, uh, the best medical summaries I've seen have maybe had a little paragraph at the top that has a little thing about, you know, um, uh, Allison is, I'll use my cousin as an example. Um, Allison is a 38 year old um, with myotonic dystrophy. You know, she first received this diagnosis when she was 11 years old, but before that had a lot of difficulty, you know, with um, school, with focus and with movement or something like that. And so it's pretty short and sweet. And then I always tell people to write a couple things that you're a couple strengths of your child and things that your child loves or that they do very well. Um, and because I think it's it's always sort of is important to to keep in a doctor's front view um, who your child is in a per is as a person and, and what is important to them. So I, I've read medical summaries that say, you know, Brandon has their two or three sentences about their sort of life story and then says, you know, Brandon loves art and he loves the Houston Astros. Um, these are, you know, and he and he is an excellent um, uh, uh, he, he's excellent at remembering birthdays and he, um, loves to give hugs to his family members or just, you know, a few things that sort of really put your child, um, strengths out there. And then, um, and then I will have people sort of list out their medical problems in almost in bullet fashion and, and give sort of dates of diagnosis and what the treatment is for that. Um, big surgeries are important. You don't have to go into all the details of what happened around that surgery, but what was the surgery and where was it performed or, or the date? And then really big hospitalization. So maybe there's been two or three times in your life where your child spend, has had to spend a few weeks in the hospital um, because of some big thing that happened. And I think those are okay to describe. Um, and then you want to list all the medications um, when you give them, what the dose is, any allergies, their vaccine record, and then supplies. So some people need diapers, they need wipes, they need catheters, they need tracheostomy, whatever it is, and they list out what the supplies are, how many they need, and what the frequency is. A good medical summary is really maybe two or three pages and not more than that, and that can be really hard to do. So I actually will tell families um, you know, of teens to, to draft it out and do it with their, their um their child, and then take a copy with you to the pediatrician, to every pediatric subspecialist that you'd see, and then say, hey, what do you think about this medical summary I made? Does this look accurate? Are there things that you would change? Um, and you really have to be a little bit aggressive and, and forthcoming with that, but I think, I think it's really important, um, and allow them to sort of help you make this. And then this is something that you should keep with you, um, so that when you eventually move on to adult doctors, you have it ready to hand to them, or if you have to go to the emergency room or you're on vacation and you need to go to an urgent care or whatever it is, um, this is a really, really valuable document and has been really helpful for a lot of my patients. Awesome. Okay, I'm just reviewing the chat real quick because there's all kinds of people that are um, putting in some great information about um, their family members. So thank you guys so much. Yes, and people talking about going through transition without a lot of this information and feeling alone and and you're not um yeah that's hard okay cool all right um 
I'm going to pause and just look at these questions real quick because we're kind of at the end of this first um, section. Someone asked a really good question about waivers. Um, yes, waivers are available for adults. Um, you can get on a waiting list or sign up for a waiver as an adult, um, and they are lifelong um, entities. There are some waivers that are only for children and that end um, uh, when a child becomes 21, for example, and then there are others that pick up into adulthood and every state is very different. So that's a great question about waivers um, and really important. Okay. Yeah, and I think there's a great comment that's um, 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 recommendation. So some people are going away to college. Um, um, and so, or, or they may be, or they may live several hours from where their geneticist or where their main healthcare system is. And so I think um, one of the reasons you want to start asking people early is because you want to think about, okay, I live here and I need a doctor that's a little bit closer to here for, you know, everyday day-to-day -day things. Or I'm going to go to college in a different city and I want to connect with a geneticist or a um, um, primary doctor in that city. And so I think that's a great, great advice um, that I saw in the chat. So um, waivers can cover, um, let me go back to the waiver slide. That's a great question. What do waivers cover? So um, um, there's a couple different things. So they're, they're especially important um, if once your child becomes 21 and they're no longer eligible for pediatric Medicaid, um, and then they would move to adult Medicaid, for example. Um, and they often um and, and and i have some some um yes and so so there's a couple of different things that they cover one is therapy so I already mentioned ptot speech um water therapy horse therapy all these things that you might have gotten regularly as a child you can no longer get regularly as an adult some private insurances will pay for it but um most states medicaids do not pay for ongoing therapies that just go on and on and on and will only pay when there's an acute need. Um, another one is um, um, nursing and provider hours. So the pediatric Medicaid is often quite generous with how many hours that a nurse or maybe just a provider can be in the home with your child watching them and, and being with them and helping to care for them. And those things get um, dramatically dropped um, with adult Medicaid. And so a lot of these waivers can step in and actually fund um, hours for people to be in the home so that as a parent, if you wanted to continue to work. Um, another thing waivers can pay for is they can pay for things like orthotics. So adult Medicaid, at least in Texas, does not pay for any kinds of orthotics um, at all. And so waivers will often pick that up. Um, waivers can sometimes pay for over-the-counter medicines um, as well that are not covered by insurance. Um, there's a lot of stuff. I'm trying to think what else people, day programming, a lot of people will use waivers for um, that they would otherwise have to pay for out of pocket. Um, so I hope that answers that question. Okay, cool. All right, so we just talked about our medical summary. So next thing um, we're gonna talk about is as you're kind of getting into those ages, 17, 18, 19, is social security determination, consent and guardianship. And then that transfer, which is where you where you actually move from a pediatric to an adult provider. So um, everybody's different. So there's some people who will not meet requirement for social security disability determination. And that's based on an individual's ability to work um, and also how much money the individual has when 
as just an individual and not their family when they are 18. And so when someone turns 18, their parents' income is no longer accounted for um, when, when, when they're trying to make this determination. Um, and it's different in every place. So having intellectual disability um, will qualify you for Social Security. Um, but then there's also some people who may not have intellectual disability, but may have very significant physical disability. Um, their condition affects them profoundly and they may qualify. Um, and so um, this is something that I think is is worth talking to a social worker about and then also looking into before your child turns 18 so you can get a lot of information about this. Um, and then also there's an individual income limit. And so sometimes people keep money in um, their child's name. Um, and so I often recommend people, you know, meeting with someone to talk about something like a special needs trust. Um, and then the ARC, usually your local ARC can often connect you to who, who are some individuals that maybe can give you some advice and help you with those sorts of things. Um, but I think this is really important. There's some people who are um, cruising right along and then they get to 18 and they assume that they're gonna um, um, be able to get um, social security because their child wouldn't be able to work. But if you don't actually go through this determination process, then, then it doesn't happen. Okay. Um, okay, this is a big one. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. So by law, a person who is 18 or older can give full permission, you know, or consent um, for medical treatment. And the term informed consent is a little bit tricky, and it actually can be different depending upon what the question is or what the thing the person has asked. So they need to understand um, the medical problem. They need to be able to discuss what maybe tests might be ordered and what treatment choices are and understand those. And then they also need to understand the risks and the benefits of these different options. And so, for example, and it's different for every decision. So I may feel that I have a patient in my clinic who actually can give me informed consent if I want to remove some earwax from their ear. <laughs> They can explain to me what the earwax is, the problem that it's causing, that maybe it's causing some itching or maybe it's causing some reduced hearing. They can understand what their treatment options are. I can do nothing. I can try to irrigate it with some water. I can try to dig in there with a little scooper. I can send them to the ear, nose and throat doctor for them to try to do something. And they can understand what the risks are of not doing anything. So leaving the wax in um, versus the benefits of getting it out maybe. Um, or maybe a risk of if I dig too deep, I might actually really hurt their eardrum, for example. And so that type of decision is one type of decision. And I might be with a patient and decide that they can really make informed consent about that. But perhaps if I was to tell them that they have a really complicated metastatic cancer that's going, that we're going to need to talk about chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, all that sort of stuff, they may not be able to understand every component of that. So consent is a little bit tricky and is actually quite situation dependent. So I believe that all of us should have people supporting us in our medical decisions. So um, I mean, I have a very close-knit family and we often go with each other to the doctor because I think it's really hard to go by yourself and absorb, you know, big news and big information and then make decisions. Um, but I think especially for some of our patients who have intellectual disability or have some neurocognitive deficits, um, this is really important to think about and talk about. So there's different options for decision-making support and protection, okay? There's medical power of attorney is one option. 
Um, guardianship, both full and partial guardianship is another option. And then something called a supportive decision-making agreement, which many states have um, in, in the US, even Texas has one. And so um, um, the, there's kind of two buckets. So if someone is not um, able to give informed consent, and this is typically in my patients that have more moderate, severe, profound intellectual disability, um, if they are not, you know, if they need a lot of support with their activities of daily living, if they um, um, uh, need help with every decision that they make, then a lot, for a lot of times guardianship is actually appropriate for these patients. Um, guardianship is not that straightforward in the sense that it costs money. And at least in Texas, it can be a few thousand dollars just to get a lawyer and to go through that process. Um, so that's kind of one divide is, is do you need guardianship or do you not need guardianship? And the physician's role really is to do a medical exam where they go through and they talk with the, the, the patient um, and also with um, usually a supporter, often a family member, and sort of go through all different aspects of their condition. Is it lifelong? Does it get worse? Um, they ask, They sort of will go through questions about memory and understanding. They'll go through um, things about driving and voting and all that sort of stuff because guardianship is pretty serious. And if somebody has guardianship over you, then all of your rights are removed. So you're no longer able to decide for yourself, like, who do you want to get married to? Where do you want to live? You can't vote, all of that sort of thing. So, um, so that's kind of one path. Um, and that path is appropriate for some people. Um, another path is um, to think about medical power of attorney. And so for people who are able to give informed consent and are able to make decisions on their own, there may be a time when they are not able to make a decision. So for example, if I was in a bad car wreck today and I was knocked unconscious and taken to the trauma unit and nobody could wake me up and talk to me, or when they woke me up, I was all groggy and not making any sense, I could not give informed consent at that time, okay? And so medical power of attorney is appropriate for someone who is typically able to give informed consent, but something may happen that may then acutely cause them to not be able to give informed consent. So uh, I have some metabolic patients that they get real, that they, they can make their own decisions, they can do all their own stuff. Something crazy happens with their disorder, they get a bad exacerbation, they're confused, they're out of it, um, and they can at that time not um, be able to make informed or to, to, to give informed consent. So for those patients, that is when medical power of attorney is appropriate. So if that is who you are, or who your child is, that's what you should be looking into is establishing medical power of attorney. Most states have a list. If you can't make a decision, then your parent makes a decision or your spouse or your sibling, and they sort of have a list of who they prioritize and how they go down the list. I think that if you have a complicated medical condition that you should actually fill out paperwork. Um, and again, Disability Rights Network is a great place to access this. Um, each state has a, sort of a disability rights office that, that advocates in their state. And then also your local ARC can help. And so I think anybody who has a serious medical condition or any kind of medical condition should have medical power of attorney. If they are typically able to make decisions and informed consent, um, they should still have it in writing who they want to make decisions for them if something happens and they're not able to. So I hope that kind of explains medical power of attorney. Um, we often have patients who will come to our clinic who maybe have 
severe intellectual disability and their parents will show us their medical power of attorney and that's not appropriate because that patient maybe has a developmental ability of a one or two year old and is nonverbal and so they're that they're not appropriate for medical power of attorney so if that please put in the chat if that, that doesn't make sense but i want to sort of clarify that for people so and then there's kind of this middle ground um, of supportive decision making and that um, is a legal document that's notarized and different states have different looking agreements where if you're a person who you can say um, i make my own decisions but i want to have a supporter or someone to help me with those decisions and then as an individual you get to designate who that supporter is and our patients will use that a lot of a, a lot of the times if doctors start talking to them and they say wait a second I actually want you to call my supporter and they have their agreement or I want my supporter to be here before I make a decision because this sounds pretty complicated. So for some people that have mild intellectual disability or neurocognitive issues, this might be the most appropriate document. Those people can also have a medical power of attorney um, um, that will explicitly sort of name that supporter um, if for some reason they can't make any decisions at all. Um, that can be confusing. So guardianship if you know that your child or that you know is in that guardianship bucket, then that's something that you want to sort of start talking about with your pediatrician or their geneticist or whoever that trusted professional doctor is, um, you know, when they're 17, um, so that you can start working on those documents and finding out in your state what the process is, how much it costs, you need a lawyer, all of that sort of stuff. So this is something you want to think about early on. Um, and I even think for people who are going away to college and don't have intellectual disability, you want to sort of really lay out who your medical power of attorney is going to be. If you're off in some other place and something happens, you want um, doctors, um, nurses, everyone to know who is your decision maker, how do I get in touch with them, and so you want to have that document. Okay, um, transferring to adult providers. So again, if you didn't get a good answer when your kid was younger, when they're 17, 18, 19, you want to say, how long are you going to keep seeing me? Um, and then um, you want to, and, and like I said before, there are some limitations. So I have lots of people who their neurologist says, I will see your kid for life. And then at 21, their insurance changes in their hospital system or their doctor's office tells that neurologist, sorry, you can't see that patient anymore. So it's not always up to the doctor, unfortunately. Um, there's also policies that come into play. And then some of our um, patients eventually get Medicare, which I'll talk about later. And a lot of pediatric doctors are not credentialed with Medicare. And so um, um, you wanna keep asking this question and make sure you know and you understand. I often tell people they may want to stagger transfer to adult doctors over the course of a few years. If your child has multiple doctors, you don't necessarily want one month to be the big transfer month and just make all the appointments in a row. Um, that can cause for some gaps in care or some, some problems. And then the last question you want to ask someone is, and I think this is particularly important for metabolic and mitochondrial patients, is what hospital should they go to if they become sick? And then for you guys, I think if there is an illness that needs a metabolic geneticist involved, um, kind of what is the, um, what is our plan for that? And so for example, at our adult hospital in Houston, there are no metabolic geneticists. And so they call Texas Children's and the metabolic geneticist will come over to the adult hospital and see the patient, for example. So you wanna start thinking about that um, during this period. Okay, what hospital are we going to? And if we're not going to the, to the children's hospital anymore, how, how will a specialist maybe that the adult hospital doesn't have, how will that look on the adult side? 
All right. Okay. Um, moving right along. So this is really the big one where insurance for a lot of people can change. Not everybody, but for a lot of people. Um, and then thinking about education, employment, and dental care is another really big one. Um, and so for people who are eligible for Medicaid, um, Medicaid can change as the patient ages. And so in Texas, um, there are two big two big dates um, for change. And one is at 19, you'll lose your Medicaid if you don't qualify for Social Security Disability Determination. And then at 21, pediatric Medicaid changes to adult managed Medicaid. Um, for those of you who are in the bucket where Medicaid is gonna be your child's insurance as they get older, um, there are a lot of changes um, and things that get covered much less on the adult side. And so this is another thing that you wanna be looking into and thinking about before your child turns 21 and their Medicaid changes. Um, the other option um, is that under the Affordable Care Act, um, people can stay on their parents' private insurance until age 26. And that doesn't have anything to do with disability or illness, it's just for everybody. And so a lot of people will stay on their parents' private insurance until they're 26. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And then certainly some of our patients are going to college, they're getting their own health insurance through college, they're getting um, jobs and they're getting their own health insurance through their job. Um, and so I think you guys know this, but you wanna be thoughtful about the plans that you pick and the coverage that they have. And you also wanna be thoughtful about, are, is there a certain one or two doctors that I'm gonna need to continue to see? And then what does that look like? Okay, um, nursing hours are another big one that change a lot, and this may not apply to a lot of you guys, but you want to think about um, what kind of care your child needs, um, and will the company that provides it continue to be able to provide it as they're an adult? Um, and then, and then I always recommend National Disability Rights Network if there's ever any problems that you run into here. Okay, um, education and employment. So. Some people um, with genetic conditions have intellectual disability, and so they are working frequently with the school. And a lot of schools try to kick people out before um, um, before they're ready to get out. And so in a lot of states, um, people can remain in, in high school or in a transition program until they're age 21 or 22. Um, and so that's part of your rights, and I think that's really important to understand that. Um, and then I would say my patients have a wide variety of plans after graduation. So some people are going on to college and moving in that direction. Some people are um, thinking more about um, what kind of supportive employment they could have. Some people are volunteering. And then some people are not doing any of those things because maybe they're unable to or because of their medical complexity, they're not able to work. Um, I always say that... Um, everybody needs a plan for what their life is gonna look like after graduation. So um, there are pretty significant mental health effects that happen when you go from being in school and seeing all your friends and your peers every day to moving outside um, and coming back home and then not having anything to do. And so for even for some of our patients who are severely and profoundly affected, we see a lot of depression and anxiety when school is over and they don't have any kind of regular social interaction anymore. So I tell everybody um, that this is something that's really important um, to be thinking about in advance, um, no matter sort of where on the spectrum you or your child are um, in terms of your ability to work. Okay, dental is another big one. This is true for everybody, um, but dental coverage is 
hardly not is basically non-existent for adult Medicaid. And then a lot of people don't have dental private dental insurance. And so um, if you have a waiver and, and, and you qualify for that, that often helps with dental. That's another great use of the waiver. And then um, sometimes people need a dentist to require sedation, and that can be really tricky and expensive. And so um, some things to think about are try, this is one instance where you may want to try not to transition and stay with your pediatric dentist. Local dental schools are often really good resources for this, and sometimes we'll have special needs clinics. And then if you're, um, if you're on Medicaid, then your insurance service coordinator really should be able to find someone um, that can, that can do your teeth. Okay. Um, last little bit, and then I'm going to be quiet. Um, like I said before, private insurance, adult with disabilities can remain a permanent dependence upon their parents' health insurance. So if your child is not going to be able to work and, and or even to work enough to completely support themselves, they can stay on your private insurance for life. Um, and HR departments will often have you fill out a form as, as the parent um, and have your doctor fill out a form verifying this. Um, and so that's one option. Another option is that some of our um, uh, patients who meet disability determination requirements can eventually get Medicare. Um, and this is because maybe their parent dies um, and they get survivor benefits, or maybe their parent gets Medicare, which then as a, as a disabled defendant allows them to qualify for Medicare. So this can be tricky. So my biggest advice is if you are older and considering retiring and you have an individual who um, is, is your dependent, no matter what their age is, um, you should definitely talk to a social worker and understand because some crazy things can happen with Medicare and Medicaid. Um, okay, long-term planning. So this is the last part. Um, and so I think this is something that I talk about a lot with families, and it's something that families want to talk about, but I think that they feel um, anxious and um, some people feel embarrassed, some people are worried about it. Um, and so this can go in a variety of different ways. Um, but I think um, for individuals who are more affected, Families are often very nervous about what happens if something happens to me and I can't take care of them anymore, um, whether they bring it up or not. And so I think that there are a lot of different options. And I will say that different options work for different people. So there are group homes. So where um, people actually will live in a house, uh, potentially with other people that might have intellectual and developmental disabilities and then almost have you know, house moms or house dads that help them. And there are beautiful and amazing group homes and there are really scary group homes. Um, and I'm sure that's true in every state because that's true here. Um, some people will stay um, in, um, will live in a, their own apartment or their own home, but with a lot of support. Um, for example, I have a young man with Down syndrome who lives in his very own apartment, um, but he has someone that comes over three days a week and sort of helps him out, make sure he's got food, make sure everything's going okay. Um, uh, if he needs to take a car trip somewhere, helps him out with that. Um, and so that that can work. Um, some people have created back houses for their kids, right? So they they have moved out, but maybe moved very close by to their to their parents or their loved ones. Um, and then I think, what if the parent is no longer there? I think I talk to parents all the time, and they tell me for for the individuals who are severely affected that are their children, 
I hope that we die at the same time. That may sound like kind of a morbid thing to say, but some parents are really worried. What do I do if, um, um, what do I do if uh, uh, I I'm not here? Who's going to care for my kid? And I think these are can be some really hard conversations. So some of the waivers can actually place help to place people in group homes, and that's what they're for. Um, sometimes you have to have hard conversations with other family members. Um, and I think for the most part, when people actually ask other family members about it, they're very receptive and excited to do that. My aunt was terrified to ask me, can my daughter move in with you when I pass away? And I was like, of course, that's what I always would have done, right? Um, and I think, but I think this is on a lot of people's minds. And so I often also will recommend that people get talk um, with other families who are in the same position, whether support groups or, or through things like Mito Action, um, about what they're doing, um, and just to be able to have really honest conversations about this. Um, I also have a lot of family members who the parents are in their 60s, individuals in their 30s, and then grandparents are in their 80s. And that squeeze of sort of taking care of everybody can be really hard. Um, I've also had people that go into a group home and it doesn't work and they have to move back home. I have people who they thought never would be able to be in a group home and yet here they are thriving in one. So I don't think there's one right answer. And I, I think it's okay to try different options and see what fits. Um, but the worst thing to do is probably to kind of put your head in the sand and, and pretend like it's not gonna happen because a lot of our patients are living longer and longer and longer. And so I think it's really important to think about these things. Um, okay. What if an adult over 20 can only support themselves with a part-time job? Yeah, so so the at least um, the forms that I mostly see from HR departments are um, um, say, is this person able to fully support themselves, you know, and, and work and in a capacity that would get them health insurance? And I say no. So I have some people who stay on their parents' private insurance past 26. Um, I have a patient who works part-time. She actually has a, a degree in social work. Um, but has a really significant um, healthcare routine in order to keep herself healthy. And she's um, um, allowed to stay on her parents' insurance. So it, the question is really meant to ask, can they work full-time in a way that they could fully support themselves and have a job that confers them with health insurance? Okay, what resources are available for parents with children with medical issues? Oh, sorry, let me do one last slide. Okay, so this these are some things that I think are good um, that are independent of what state you live in, because I assume that we're all in a lot of different places. Um, um, starting the ARC um, and Easter Seals and some of those organizations that are in, in all the all cities or all big cities, um, I think is a good place to start um, for sure. Okay, cool. I wish I could see everybody's faces. Okay, let me stop sharing. Okay. Um, all right, so let's look at some of these questions I missed. Okay, what resources are available for parents with children with medical issues? Who? Um, I am not aware. Carol, that's a great question. Um, I am not aware of any like national or, or nationwide resources um, that are available across the board. Um, I would say that... Um, how do my parents find out about things in Texas here? So um, one is through, if your child has a waiver, the waiver coordinator is supposed to be able to provide you with a lot of these different options. Waiver coordinators are 
wildly variable in their quality. Um, I would say similar things should be said for insurance coordinators. So we have managed Medicaid in Texas, and those people are also supposed to be able to provide different different options. I think going to a place like the local ARC um, or looking into your state disability rights organization, so it's called Disability Rights Texas, and that's that national disability rights organization. Those are probably your two best places to start um, in terms of finding resources um, many, many more places have transition resources than they used to, um, but I would start at those two places. Disability Rights Texas is fantastic, and so I imagine that there are similarly really motivated people in different states that are running those different mandatory state organizations. Um, Texas is big, but it also has something called Texas Parent to Parent, and um, it's in statewide parent-to-parent -parent group, and I think that's where a lot of my parents find information is from other parents. Um, Mido is kind of rare, and so it's not like you could be in a city and be like, I'm going to go to the like um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Mido group tonight and talk to all the other Mido parents, right? Um, and so you kind of have to be a little flexible in thinking about um, who are my peers, um, and your peers may look they may have a variety of conditions, but I would start with the ARC um, and then the National Disability Rights Organizations um, as places to look into. And I'll, and I'll pop in there too and just say, yeah. you know, like um, we do support groups every Friday, um, except in the day we have expert series. Um, and so that's a great place to, to network and ask other parents like, hey, how did you, how did you find this? Or how are you dealing with this? And where did you get this resource? And you can always contact us too at Mito Action and we can try to help work with you to find a resource that is, um, you know, for your specific situation. That's, that's one of the things, um, that, that we do here to try to connect people with other people. So, um, just kind of add that in there too. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of my parents feel most comfortable learning about stuff word of mouth, like, Hey, this group home was really great for my child, right? It feels mm -hmm. much, much less scary to sort of do that. So I think the big thing is you kind of have to expand who, who your peers are a little bit. We did have a question that kind of came in and I answered it, but I kind of want to make sure that I gave the right answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she was asking if you have private health insurance, like is the Medicaid waiver program something um, that she should explore? And if your kids are like already, you know, like 18 or 19, like if you applied for the Medicaid waiver program and they're on that long waiting list, at 21, do they just get off or do they get flipped to like, um, like once they turn 21, do they, is there like? supplement? Yeah. Is there supplemental yeah. insurance available? Yeah. There too? And I think, um, Robert asked a good question in the question and answer too. The waiver criteria varies wildly dependent upon waiver and then also state to state. So, um, um, Robert, I know that's not, <laughs> that's not helpful. Um, but I will tell you that that it varies wildly. So let me let me just pull up just to give you an example of what criteria looks like for um, um, Texas. And so there are waivers that are only pediatric waivers. But for example, two of the big waivers in Texas are called HCS, like Home and Community Services and CLASS, which has is another acronym. You um, there, there are waivers that you only get as adults, but that you can sign up for when you're really little. And then there's some waivers that can flip from the pediatric version to the adult version, but every state really does it differently. And so let me pull up 
what our state looks like. Um, and every waiting list is different. So Texas is really bad. Some states you can access services really, really quickly. And we've had parents who have moved solely because they were like, this is a bad state for this particular thing. I mean, I got my Astros on, it's not all bad, but you know, for this particular thing, this is not gonna work for us. And so they have actually moved to a different state where accessing those Medicaid waivers is either instant or the more of a matter of like months or year than longer than that. So let me see. And I think you're, I think you're teaching an important thing is, is there's so much education that as parents, like we have to do in order to prepare for the next step. It's the same with medical insurance. For example, um, some medical insurance companies, when it comes to medical formulas, like it will cover, it'll be covered under durable medical equipment. Well, mm -hmm. if one plan, the durable medical equipment is covered at a hundred percent and it's not subject to deductible, that might need to be the healthcare plan that I go with, even though it's a little bit more expensive. So then you have to kind of crunch those numbers because I know that we're going to be getting formula. Whereas if I have a durable medical equipment that only 50% of the cost is covered, you know, it's going to be quite a bit more expensive because we know that we're going to have that expense every month. Yes, no, absolutely. And I think that's why I encourage people to start looking at it and thinking about it early. Um, I've certainly had people that have transitioned over with certain supplements or formulas um, and they've just picked whatever. Um, and then we've had to back scramble and, you know, beg for samples and, you know, that sort of stuff until they could change their plan. Now, some people are like on here and they're like, oh my God, my kid is 18. Like I didn't do any of this stuff. It's okay. <laughs> do not, you just start where you are. You know what I mean? And that's okay. So you don't have to, um, um, if, if you feel like you've missed something, you haven't missed anything. You just start where you are. Um, but I think people often think, oh, I'll worry about that stuff later. But there's even stuff like a lot of the self-management that you can start when your child is 12, 13, 14. So if your child is younger, start where you are. You can start doing stuff now. If your child's older, start where you are. You just start You just start doing stuff now. So let me show you um, these, and so these interest lists are these different kinds of waivers. Okay, can I share one more time? Mm -hmm. Go for it. Okay, so this is Texas Long-Term Services and Supports LTSS waiver programs. Okay, so... Um, these are are you going to share your screen or am I sharing? No. Yeah, there we go. I'm talking about. Okay. Thanks. Abby. I didn't hit the last little button. So these are different. Um, and so you'll see ages served looks different for different ones. Okay. Um, uh, uh, and then, um, okay. I didn't improvise. Let's see if this is more or something. So this is the money that you can get. So the maximum cost. So um, let, and, and this, for example, this is like a big money waiver and this is per year. And these are LON level of need. So depending upon your child's level of need, this is the amount of money that you can have in your budget. You don't just get this in cash, but you get this amount of money to, to sort of put off into different buckets. Like I want this for therapy. I want this for provider hours. I want this. Um, these are different, um, 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 eligibility. And so there's the deafblind waiver, which obviously has a very different eligibility criteria than um, um, class, which more is that there are moderate to extreme deficits in adaptive behavior. And so a lot of this is really kind of a little bit nebulous. And so I often will tell people to get on the waiting list in their state. So HCS is more 
um, in terms of intellectual disability. Clash, you can have normal intellectual ability, um, but you might have more physical disability or, 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 or more deficits because of your condition. So these are just some examples of ones in Texas, and they may have more or less in your state. Um, and then um, none of, I'm trying to think, yeah, so th th there's, it just goes on and on and on, basically all these different sheets. But everything is different in every state. And then I always tell people, if you're a state that has a long waiting list, why don't you just sign up? And then you, once you get to the point where you're at the top of the list and they offer you a spot, then you go through the eligibility criteria. So if you're in a state with a long waiting list and you're like, my kid's 12, I don't know, I'm not sure. Like some days I think we're doing great and other days I think, how are we going to do this? <laughs> um, then you just sign up. And then when you get to the top of that waiting list, if they're 22 and you're cruising and they don't meet eligibility criteria, then that's awesome. And if they do, then you've, you've had it and you've done it. I'm curious as an internal medicine um, doctor, yeah. what tips you have for young adults who are about to transition from pediatric to their regular internal medicine um, yeah. in regards to choosing and how do they oh, yeah. interview the doctor to make sure that they're a good fit with having a chronic illness? Like, do you have specific questions you think patients should make sure they ask those doctors? Yeah. I mean, I think first, some of it's by word of mouth and by asking the pediatrician for recommendations, but sometimes they don't have recommendations, which is a bummer. The next step is thinking about insurance. And I think Rachel makes like a really good point in the chat. Um, I often will tell people to ask the office, like before you even, you're getting a doctor, but you're also getting their office and you can have the most wonderful, kind, sweet doctor who listens to everything, but their office can never fill out a title 19 correctly, can never submit anything to a DME correctly, refuses to do prior auths. Um, you can never get to said doctor. Right. And so sometimes what I'll do is, um, um, is to have is to ask actually the staff, hey, do you guys take care of patients with disabilities? Do you guys ever take care of any patients that you need to do prior, auth prior authorizations for? Do you take care of patients that need things submitted to equipment companies or do you, or, or special formulas? And if people give you these looks like, oh uh, uh, yeah, uh, but, they, but, they, but they don't seem to speak that language, then that's, I think, a situation to avoid because that's otherwise you're going to make yourself crazy kind of you're already having to advocate. You're already going back and forth with the DME to the doctor's office. But if you don't have somebody in that office that's willing to do that work, then you're not going to be able to move forward. So that's first. And then I think in terms of physician, you're looking for someone that's willing to learn and willing to, um, and that I think has, um, appreciates that you are an expert in either your own care or the care of your child. So Nobody is going, you're not going to go to any internist that's like, oh, you have the LCHAD, great. I, I just think about that all the time. Come on in. Like you're just, that's not going to happen. So what you need to do is you need to, and, and you might have to go to a visit and you might be like, okay, this is like not going to work. You need to come in and, and maybe you have your medical summary and maybe you have a one page fact sheet about your condition. A lot of geneticists give those to their, their families. And I think they're great. And you need to see how receptive that person is. If they're like, okay, and just kind of hand it back to you, or if they're like, great, and just put it aside and then never bring it up again, that that's kind of a little bit of a red flag. You can't expect them to be an expert, but you should expect that if you give them something small, that's readable, that's not 50 pages, 
that they are like, oh, thank you so much. Like, and it's okay for them to say, you're the first person I've taken care of with this, but I'm so glad for this because I need this. Then that, that's a good sign. And then I think also, um, if someone is, you, you also cannot have the kind of physician that's sort of dismissive and is like, here's your care plan, like take it or leave it. Um, that's not going to work for, for our patients with metabolic and mitochondrial conditions. So you need to, to, whether you find this out by word of mouth or you do a visit or two, you need to know that if you call as an individual and you're like, I, I'm having this issue or this symptom, or my child is going through this, that they are going to listen and they're not just going to kind of say, go tell you, you know, that sort of thing. So I think those are the two biggest things. I think you find out a lot if you go to the first appointment and you hand them something that's small and not, not, not 50 pages, but small, you find out a lot from that um, reaction and that can kind of steer you one way or the other. I don't know if that helps. No, no, that's really, really helpful. And I know we're getting, we're getting close to, to time. We've met time, but I have a, a big question, but just maybe a little bit of your input because yeah. you've worked with transition so long. I'm just curious. Um, I think as parents, it's hard sometimes to know how much to give over to your child along the way because you're afraid of them being burned out before they're even on their own. Um, and so I'm curious if you have any tips. Um, which again, I realize this is a huge question to ask at the end, but I don't want to lose that wisdom that you have with like yeah. how to prevent the burnout that you know that can happen with chronic illness, yeah. um, but also give them a chance to advocate and, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think some, all of us are different. And so some of your kids are going to take it and run with it. And some kids need more time. Um, and some kids, it's just all different. I usually tell people to work on things in steps. So I don't think it's the right approach to kind of say all at once, you're going to meet with your doctor by yourself. You're going to take all your own meds um, to this phone alarm. That's going to bother you all the time. And you're going to, you know, I think you really have to take it in steps and kind of master one step and then try to move to the next step. Um, I think it's okay to continue to do some things for your child while you're working on something else. Um, I don't recommend them hitting 12, 13, 14, and then that's it. And then I think also, be wary of people who tell you that something should happen at a particular, like at this exact age. And I think you guys probably all get that because just because it doesn't happen when they're two doesn't mean it's not going to happen when they're five. Um, and granted, maybe it'll never happen. But I think I have realized that I have some patients that are now 24, 25 and are just like really hitting their stride, doing things by themselves. Other people that came to me at 18 and were already rocking it. So I think, you know, your child. I think you have to push them, but pick one thing at a time to kind of push and then understand that their brain is still developing until they're 25. And um, we can all think about college and things like, ooh, my brain was not developed at 21, 20, 19, 18, right? So just pick something, go one at a time and, 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 and push like that, test like that, and then understand that it's not going to be on the exact timeline that you imagined. But you guys already know all that because you guys are pro parents. So that's no, I really, I really appreciate that because I think the timelines do become a big deal, even though like somewhere in our minds, like we know, like, okay, every kid's different and it's okay that our kid isn't doing this by whatever age that, you you know, so it's, it's helpful to know that, you know what, it's, there's gray, there's gray in there and it's okay to work within that and, and, um, and be okay with that. So really, really appreciate that. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Kamir, for your presentation, for your wisdom, for your help. We really, really appreciate your time. Um, just want to give people a reminder that today's presentation will be posted on our website for anyone who'd like to listen again, share with others, or go back at a later date and listen. You can also find the full catalog of the expert series presentations on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and on our website at mitoaction.org. We thank you, everybody, for joining here today and for taking time out of your day and um, just joining us in this journey of transition. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Bye. Bye.